Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in the first verse. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. What is celibacy? And why is that a thing? Well, first off, celibacy, classically understood, is the state of being unmarried by choice. If it is not by choice, if a man is simply single due to circumstances, then we're talking about his chastity, which is he is unmarried and therefore seeks marriage while not sinning sexually. The same goes for women. But celibacy, that is not having a spouse and remaining that way, either by choice or by divine command, perhaps by gift, that's a whole different ballpark, and there's a lot of confusion surrounding that. So St. Paul says he wishes that all were as he is. I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, some people are going to connect that to verse 6 as a concession, not a command. I say this. Well, the context where he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, he says that is a concession. Meaning, St. Paul is not commanding husbands and wives abstain from sex. To the contrary, he says, if you do that, I mean, that is an option, but come back together. That's his concession. He's not saying that marriage itself and people getting married is a concession, not a command. The normative human behavior throughout all of human history has been to go get married, go get a spouse, come together, and keep coming together over and over again throughout the course of your marriage. That is normal. People should do that. But St. Paul, when he talks about self-control and depriving one another for a limited time, that's optional. Now, as a new paragraph, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. With his superb self-control, his sexual continence, his superb chastity, 
and not having to have a wife. Some people believe that St. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was required to be married. That's not necessarily the case. But he says each has his own gift from God. So his celibacy, or at the very least his self-discipline, his self-control is a gift from God. Celibacy, properly understood, is a gift. Someone who is celibate, if we are speaking biblically, is somebody gifted with the ability to exercise such self-control that they either have no sexual urges or they can soundly ignore them. For the rest of us, sexual urges and desires are like a drug that you become naturally addicted to when you hit puberty. And there's no denying it. If somebody is a heroin addict, you can put them in a place where there is no heroin, they can't get high. If you put a normal human being in any location with normal sexual urges and desires, there will always be some opportunity to slake that thirst, so to speak. The vast majority of us, and I mean vast majority, are not so gifted with celibacy that we can just perfectly exercise self-control. Uh, the old adage goes, if you put a young man and a young woman in a room together and just leave them there over the course of a certain amount of months, chances are they will end up doing the deed, unfortunately. And the gift of celibacy is even more rare these days, given that we have a hyper-sexualized culture that throws sex in kids' faces from the moment they start watching TV, just about. It will be shoved in their faces, and parents should be curating the media that their children consume, but there is a point where there's only so much parents can do. We have to be on guard, we have to do our best, and parents do well to help their children get married should their kid prove to be a normal person. This is why St. Paul says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Question for you. For you Roman Catholics listening, who upholds celibacy as a discipline, something to be celebrated, something so great that just everybody should have it. And if somebody does get married, they should sleep on opposite beds until it's time to have a baby, I guess. If you could have every single human being in the world be totally celibate, would you? Would you have all of humanity die out over the course of a couple generations because nobody should be having sex whatsoever? I should hope, for your sake, that the answer is no. Because the Bible celebrates sex within the context of marriage. The entirety of the Song of Solomon is one giant celebration of the estate of marriage, and that includes sex. And I know the old line is, well, the Song of Solomon is an allegory for the relationship between Christ and his church. Really? Let's go ahead and crack open the Song of Solomon and read from chapter 4. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. 
Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. If this is an allegory for the relationship between Christ and his church, what is symbolized by breasts? Why is our Lord Jesus staring at boobies? Are we really going to say that Christ is a horn dog for the church? Is that how profane we want to get? Or if we read from chapter 5 regarding the bride praising her beloved. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's not just admiring a man's handsomeness if she's staring at his legs and if she's observing him drooling over her. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. This is a man acting like a rutting buck drooling after a hot girl. Come on. Are you saying that the church should feel this way about Christ? What is the allegorical interpretation of, man, he's got some solid legs. Oh, gosh, the power. Come on. Come on. But the problem is that the church has always had this weird love-hate relationship with sex. We like babies. We want to see more babies in the world. We have had zero problems telling people that children are a blessing from God because that's what the scriptures say. But then, when it comes to the topic of sex, we roundly ignore all the things the Bible says about how great sex is in the context of holy matrimony. And we tell people, um, uh, if you have to, if you have to. But otherwise, I mean, you should be sleeping in separate beds. And if husbands should ask for it, they should feel ashamed of themselves because that's marital rape. If they say we should be having sex, that's marital rape. I can criticize Rome all I want. The same problem is in evangelical spheres and Lutheran spheres just as much, just differently stated. The moment you say what the Bible says about sex and St. Paul telling married couples, go have sex and do it frequently, then everybody immediately starts throwing out their what ifs and they all say that, oh, you're pressuring me and that means it's marital rape and all sorts of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. Marital rape is a thing. You can say that the wedding ring is consent. The covenant of marriage is consent. Sure, but husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. You know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't beat the church senseless and then have his way with her. Our Lord Christ doesn't drug the church and force the church to do things that they would otherwise not do. That's not loving your wife as Christ loves the church. So... You should be having sex often if you're married. You're not celibate. You don't have the gift for it. Chances are. If you did have the gift of celibacy, 
I imagine you wouldn't be listening to this podcast series. But with husbands and wives, it should not be controversial to say, you're one, go be one more. Go enjoy perichoresis with one another. That's not controversial. But the church, regarding matters of celibacy, has declared at various times that sex is bad. They really have. If they say they haven't, or they try to get into some sort of weird pill-pull argument of, well, we've never said that it's bad in marriage. Yeah, you have. You really have. You've taken something that God says is good. You've taken something that God created for humanity, a great wedding present from our Lord, if I say so myself, and you've called it evil because the church has confused normal sexual relations between spouses and the flesh, saying, oh, you're treating your bedroom like a bordello, as Augustine and Jerome would say. Or, oh, you're just using each other for pleasure, as many people today would say. Or, oh, this is about some animalistic pig of a man using his wife to get his rocks off, as evangelical churches have said. There's no point in which the church seems to have been just comfortable with married people doing what they're supposed to do. So we have all these theologies surrounding celibacy, quite a few of them coming from Augustine's uh, weird psychological problems from him having formerly been a horn dog, realizing how he screwed up his life, and then going on this anti-sex tirade. And I get it. I really do. Because as much as the church has this angst regarding sex, so too does the wider culture around us. Make no mistakes, our hypersexualized culture hates sex. Oh, don't get me wrong, they love sexual sin. They love sexual sin and how much it destroys lives in every stripe. But they hate married people doing what married people are supposed to do. Because they don't want you having that to enjoy. They don't want you, quote-unquote, confined to one person. So they spin up all these yarns about abuse. They spin up all these yarns about, yeah, the old frigid lady, etc. and so forth. Leading to, well, kind of an opposite world vision of celibacy. The world may be hypersexualized. It hates sex. It hates that it makes babies. It loves harming people. It loves mutating what God created into despicable and perverse acts all over the place. And it tells you that you shouldn't get married. To shore up this idea, many in the Roman Catholic Church would say, Ah, oh, but St. Paul says in chapter 7, it's good for somebody who is single to remain single. Yes, but to formulate theology around that or practical outworkings of Christian life is to ignore chapter 7, verse 26, which gives us some more context. He says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So, in that congregation, in the first century, the present distress hitting the Corinthian church was harming them. It was hard to justify getting married or leaving somebody that is in your charge, somebody that you are married to, 
given the circumstances the church was going through at the time. Do we know the nature of that? No. Is it good wisdom to say that if our culture hits more distress, more persecution against Christians, that maybe they should stay where they are? Sure. Does that mean that forever it is better to abscond with and ignore this blessing God has given you and the opportunities to enjoy it? And if you're married, well, don't do it anyway. No, absolutely not. Why is the church taking this adversarial relationship toward the estate of marriage? It boggles the mind. They tell kids, don't have sex until you're married. Don't have sex until you're married. Look at all these terrible things that are going to happen. And by the way, it's really great in marriage. And then when they grow up and get married, they're told, hey, by the way, don't. Don't. Husbands, if you ask for it or demand it or anything like that, that's marital rape and you should feel ashamed of yourself. She should probably divorce you and take all your stuff. And they tell women, well, you shouldn't just let him have his way because Lord knows he's just going to walk all over you. He's going to use you. He's going to hate you. You're just going to be a plaything for him. And he doesn't see you as a person, so don't. And then we tell them, ah, yes, but our church, the most holy apostolic church, the one true church, has decided that you shall go on a fast from this. And maybe you don't have to, but we really want you to be super holy. So unless it's time to make a baby, uh, and even then it's got to be lights out, missionary position, uh, put a sheet over her face or something, uh, unless it's that... Don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy anything that doesn't make a baby. Just try to pretend that she's a Barbie doll with no genitals and that you're a Ken doll with nothing out there in the pants either. Don't be natural. Don't be normal. Don't have fun. Wow, so the church's message to everybody, whether Protestant or Catholic, has been, don't. We hate this thing that God made. We don't want it celebrated. We don't want it encouraged among people. <laughs> no. And then we look around the culture, we see the fruits of our neglect and our rebellion against God, and then we throw up our hands and pat ourselves on the back going, man, I really wish they would have listened. Whoosh! The point goes flying over our heads. Great. You see, the church has forgotten that celibacy is a gift from God that he gives to whom he wills. Self-control is a burden. Self-control is hard. If you are in a position where you have to constantly exercise that self-control, that's a burden. That's not always a good thing. It is good to marry so that burden is lifted. But celibacy as a gift for those few that have it is great. It's great for those servants of the church that are unburdened by sexual desires and lusts and things like that because those men and women, with that gift, they are able to serve God and to love the church free from the burdens of, wow, the wife needs X, Y, or Z thing from the grocery store and I need to do this to help raise my kids and I've got all these things that I need to do to take care of this life. They are free from that, and they're also free from the temptation to destroy their office through sexual sins. That's a good thing that should be celebrated in the rare circumstances in which it happens. But other than that, celibacy is not a cross to bear. Celibacy is a gift. It would not be a burden which requires self-control. 
Now, St. Paul had self-control in spades, whether he was married at some point and later widowed or not. Sure, he also had that gift from God where it was not a problem. For the rest of us, we should get married and enjoy being married together as husband and wife, coming together often as St. Paul says. So do you want to know how to preserve your marriage? Don't listen to what the churches are saying concerning your sex life in marriage. Listen to what the Bible has to say about it. Because sad to say, chances are your church is not going to be teaching the right thing on it. If they are, great. Have fun. And your church will tell you to go have fun with your spouse. If they're not, well, shame on them. Shame on them for calling good evil and evil good. Now, I recognize that there are people who would call themselves involuntary celibates. We will talk about that next week, and I am sure it will generate a little bit of controversy, but we'll bring that up, and we're going to try to help some people out. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.